This afternoon, we're continuing our journey through the Sermon on the Mount as we look at the fifth beatitude of Jesus, Matthew 5, verse 7. Now, each week, if you've noticed, Larry and I have talked through the nature of these beatitudes, and I want to do so briefly again to help us understand the context for what Jesus says in this verse. There are two general principles about the Beatitudes that I want to remind us of as we get going here. First, the Beatitudes are not a list of requirements for salvation. They're not a list of commands that we must obey in order to be saved. Rather, the Beatitudes are a description of what life should look like for those who are saved. In other words, these these verses describe the ideal life of God's disciples. Jesus is saying that This is what it looks like to belong to my kingdom. He's inviting his listeners, his his disciples, into this certain way of flourishing in life. He's saying this this is life as God has intended it to be. This is what the good life looks like. He's saying because of who you already are as disciples, live now in this way. That's the first principle. First thing to remember. The Beatitudes don't tell us how to be saved. They tell us what life should look like for those who are saved. Second principle is this, the Beatitudes are not an unrelated group of sayings. We can't pick and choose our favorite Beatitude or consider one in isolation from the rest. Instead, they belong together. If we took only one on its own, then we would come away with a very distorted and probably wrong understanding of what Jesus is saying. To do this would be like trying to make a recipe by only looking at one ingredient. So I make uh, pancakes for my kids every Saturday morning. And me too. I eat them too. But uh, we do pancakes. And if I was to, let's say, pull out a recipe and just say, oh, do you know what? There's uh, milk goes in these pancakes. And so I put milk in the bowl and now I'm going to whip up pancakes. That's not how it works. You need, it all, you need all the ingredients to do it. On top of that, there's actually an order that you should do these things in. They're going to turn out different if I throw all the ingredients in a bowl and mix them up or if I do the wet and the dry ingredients separately. It's a pro tip right there on making pancakes. If you want fluffy, that's what you need to do. The Beatitudes are like that. They must be taken together, and they must be taken in order. They build off of each other. Reading reading through them is like climbing a ladder or a set of stairs where each step is dependent on the one that came before. Now, with these two things in mind, that the Beatitudes are a description of kingdom living, living, and that they must be taken together in order. I want us to look together at God's Word. And follow along with me. I'm going to read from Matthew 1 through 12, Matthew 5, verse 1 through 12. And hear the Word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs 
is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God for his word. Now, to be a follower of Jesus is to be a lifelong learner at the feet of the teacher. Let us listen carefully to what he has to say to us, and may his spirit transform our, our thoughts and our actions and our affections. His message for us today is this, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, as we work towards understanding what this text has to say to us about God and about ourselves, we're going to ask three questions. And the first is this, what does it mean to be merciful? What does it mean to be merciful? I've often heard grace and mercy described together. And I've been told that that grace is receiving what we don't deserve, and mercy is not receiving what we do deserve. Now, while there's truth to this, this can cast mercy in a somewhat negative light. This isn't the whole story. Mercy is far more than just not getting something bad. Mercy is a generous response of compassion to the miserable. A generous response of compassion to the miserable. I heard one author compare mercy to kindness in this way. He said, kindness is a friend calling when you are well. Mercy is a friend calling when you are sick. Those that are merciful, they they love their neighbors that are in need. They are willing to forgive those who wronged them. They're ready to take on the troubles that others face. They offer compassionate aid to those in distress. They enter into the trials of others, and then they give of themselves to meet their needs. The merciful are not stingy with their time. They're not tight-fisted with their resources. They have generous instincts and are thoughtfully caring as they work to alleviate the pain and troubles of others. And Jesus provides a wonderful picture of mercy in Luke chapter 10, verses 30 through 37. Here he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, and it's a story that you're likely familiar with. A lawyer comes to Jesus, and in the course of their conversation, he asks them, who is my neighbor? Who is the neighbor that I should love? And that's where Jesus tells the story of a man that's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And on his way, he's beaten and stripped and robbed and left half dead. And a priest and a Levi, they come by. And they leave him be. They pass by on the other side. They want nothing to do with him. But then a Samaritan happened along the way. And Jesus says that as he journeyed, as the Samaritan journeyed, he came to where this man was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. This Samaritan, who would have never had anything to do with this man in any way, goes out of his way to care for this beaten and robbed man. Jesus then asked the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you, go and do likewise. The point of Jesus in telling the story is to articulate what it looks like to be a neighbor, to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus' answer is that the loving neighbor is the one who shows mercy to those in need. Jesus goes right there. 
And I want us to notice just five quick things that this story teaches us about mercy. First thing that we see is that the good Samaritan was willing to go out of his way when he saw someone in trouble. Jesus says that as he journeyed, he had, this, he had a destination and a planned route somewhere he was going. He turned away from this journey and came to where the beaten man was. He was willing to go out of his way when he saw someone in trouble. But that's not all he did. Second, the good Samaritan, when he saw someone in trouble, he responded with compassion. Verse 33 of chapter 10 says that when he saw him, he had compassion on him. This means that the good Samaritan, he entered into the suffering of this stranger and he took pity on him. He didn't ignore him or see him and chalk up the man's beating to just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Instead, he looked with compassion on him. Third, out of his compassion, the good Samaritan was willing to give of what he had to meet this stranger's need. He didn't just come to fix a problem. He came to care for the needy. What I mean by this is that instead of going after the robbers, which he could have done, seeking justice, vengeance, or he could have declared society's failure in in protecting its people, he could have been lodging protest, the Good Samaritan didn't do either of these things. He sought to address the need that was right there in front of him. He cared for the man and brought him relief by, by meeting his need. Pastor theologian Sinclair Ferguson, he comments, Mercy is getting down on your hands and knees and doing what you can to restore dignity to someone whose life has been broken by sin. Getting down on your hands and knees and doing what you can to restore dignity to someone whose life has been broken by sin, whether his own or that of someone else. The Good Samaritan was not hesitant but generous when he saw someone in trouble. A fourth thing we see about the Good Samaritan, his demonstration of mercy, is that he did not make excuses in order to extend mercy. Notice who Jesus uses as the examples opposite to mercy. He uses the Levite and the priest, these religious and and seemingly righteous individuals. These men hid behind what they viewed as their higher call than helping those in need. Because, Because of what they had to do, their tasks, they were not willing to be inconvenienced. Nor were they willing to let go of their plans in order to adjust to what God had literally brought across their path. The fifth thing to notice about the Good Samaritan's mercy is that he was willing to do all this for an enemy. This beaten man was a man who the Samaritan, again, would have never associated with. They both would have looked down on each other. But mercy meant love for the Samaritan's enemy. This is what it means to be merciful. You see those in pain, those in misery, those suffering, and your heart aches for them. Their pain becomes your pain, and so you, you enter into it with the aim of bringing relief and restoration, even to an enemy. Now there's one more thing I want us to reflect on as we consider what it means to be merciful, and that's this. God is merciful. The pages of Scripture are filled with stories of the abundant mercy of God. I was talking to Jean Mays a couple weeks ago, and she is making her way through the Bible, and she was just commenting on like, man, God's people are just so messed up. I mean, it's like every page, it's failure after failure after failure. And you know what's on every page? Mercy after mercy after mercy, as God is faithful to His covenant promises. Being merciful is a very part of who God is. When God renews His covenant with the people of Israel in Exodus 34, this is right after the golden calf. 
God proclaims his name to Moses. And he says this in Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Being merciful is the very first word that God uses to describe himself. So whatever we say about being merciful must also be true of God. And this can provide a helpful balance to our understanding of mercy. Because when the world thinks of what it means to be merciful, it could be easy just to go to someone who's, who's easygoing, who's tolerant, who's willing to let anything go in the name of mercy, in the name of love. But this does not in any way describe God's mercy. If this is what we think it means to be merciful, then we don't have God's understanding of mercy. We have the world's understanding of mercy. So to be merciful, it can't be only accepting of everyone and everything at all times, because this flies in the face of what God reveals in his word. In Exodus 34, God goes on to say that he keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. In God, mercy and justice, they they meet together. While God is merciful, he is also just and righteous. And who God is, it can't be divided and split apart as if sometimes God is righteousness and truth and other times he's mercy and grace. To say so would make God not God. All of these things exist at all times in fullness in him. That's crazy. And when we, a lot of times we'll, if we study theology, we'll come to the attributes of God and we'll consider all these things individually. We can easily lose sight of the fact that, no, all of these things are existing at all times in their fullness in God. Mercy and truth, they go together and they cannot be separated. So instead of taking our cues from the world around us, we must take our cues from God's Word, from His revelation, His revealing of who He is in the Bible. And now that we have a better understanding of mercy, the next question we need to ask is this, why should you be merciful? Why should you be merciful? Jesus is not saying you should be merciful if you want to be saved. We've got to be clear on that. We are not merciful in order to receive God's mercy. Remember our two principles for the Beatitudes? The first tells us that the Beatitudes are a description of the life of those who are already saved. So when Jesus says, blessed are those who are merciful, he's talking about those who have already received mercy. It's not a requirement to be saved. If we had to extend mercy to obtain God's mercy, then what God would be giving us is not mercy, but only what we've earned. If we have to earn God's mercy, then it's not mercy we receive, but the payment that we're due. But thanks be to God, because he indeed does give us mercy. What Jesus is saying is that if you are saved, then you will extend mercy. So why should you be merciful? Well, I want us to first look back and then forward in answering this question. First look back. You should be merciful because God has been merciful to you. To better grasp this gift of mercy that God gives us as his children. Let's climb the ladder of the Beatitudes together. Jesus begins his sermon by telling his listeners that those who are poor in spirit are blessed. And he describes this position, this being poor in spirit, as precisely the position of divine happiness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it's only from this position, this vantage point, that one can receive the saving grace and goodness of God for salvation. 
You must be poor in spirit. And the next verse climbs up the next rung, rung of the ladder. Blessed are those who mourn. Those who are poor in spirit, they recognize that they have nothing to claim for their own but sin. It's all we bring to the table. And so they grieve over the damage that the curse of sin has unleashed on the world. They are those who mourn. And they will be comforted by the comfort only Christ can bring. And those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who recognize that their only hope lies outside of themselves and in the grace of God, they must be meek. Their lives are marked by a humility and a a lowliness that reflects the humility of Jesus Christ, the one whose very heart is gentle and lowly. And from this meekness, the disciples of Christ hunger and thirst for God's righteousness to be put on display in their own lives and in the world around them. They look to God and His righteousness as they navigate life in this world. And it's here. After Jesus has described the life of His disciples marked by dependence, brokenness, humility, and hunger for righteousness, that Jesus says that the merciful will be blessed. It's aware of our own destitution, our own hopelessness in ourselves, that we're driven out of ourselves to look to Jesus Christ. He alone can meet our needs and the needs of those around us. God intends that life in His kingdom is one that flows out to others by extending to others the same mercy we have received in Jesus Christ. In other words, God shows us mercy that we might show mercy to others. So why should you be merciful? Because God has been merciful to you. So we've looked back at God's mercy. Now let's look forward and answer this question a different way. Why should I be merciful? Because God will be merciful to me. God has promised future mercy to those who have received His mercy and in turn are merciful to others. What a precious promise this is. This future blessing is not something we earn, it's a gift of His grace. To say that God will be merciful to us if we are merciful to others is not the prosperity gospel. We're not naming it and claiming it. It's what this verse plainly states and that to which Scripture attests. Those who are merciful are blessed and shall receive mercy. This does not mean that you will not suffer. Nor does it mean that you will never need mercy from others. And it does not mean that we need to extend mercy in order to earn mercy. But what it does mean is that in the kindness and grace and mercy of God, when we extend mercy to others, God delights to bless us, both now and in the future. The mercy of salvation that we experience now is only a partial taste of the full expression of mercy we will experience at Christ's return. What we have now is just the appetizer. What we now only know in part will one day be seen in full. So why should I be merciful? Because God has been merciful and God will be merciful. That's not all the reasons we should be merciful. Why should we be merciful? Because God has called us to be merciful. This is something we see testified to throughout Scripture. For example, in Micah 6.8, the prophet writes, He has told you, O man... What is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? This is what God has called his people to do. Now, it's interesting how this verse overlaps so much with what we've already covered in the Sermon on the Mount. God says, Do justice. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
Love mercy, blessed are the merciful, and walk humbly, blessed are the poor in spirit and the meek. But this call of God to love mercy, it goes far beyond what we may be comfortable with. In Luke 6, verse 35 and 36, Jesus tells us to even extend mercy to our enemies, just like the Good Samaritan did. Jesus says this, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. And this is exactly what God has done. He has been kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Though we were once His enemies, now we're seated at His table. Though once we were dead in our sins, He has made us alive with Christ. So why should I be merciful? Because God tells us to be merciful. Now if we ended here, we would fall short of how God's Word is meant to function in our lives. If we left here only with a better understanding of mercy and the need to be merciful, we would have missed one important question we must ask in response to these first two, and it's this. Are you merciful? Are you merciful? When we consider a text like this, it can be easy, much easier, to avoid this question. It's far more comfortable to just let Jesus' call to us stay as only, as only head knowledge, rather than let it work its way into our hearts and actions. And I've been, as I've been preparing and, and praying this week, this has been a challenge for me. If you had asked me last week if I thought I was merciful, I would have given myself a pretty good grade. But as I've studied this week, uh, the Spirit has been challenging and convicting me of selfishness and mercilessness towards others. And I see it all over my life every day. That would be nice if there was some kind of happy medium that I could find where I could never be considered merciless, but maybe I'm not always merciful. But this place doesn't exist. To not be merciful is to be merciless. So to aid us as we consider whether we are merciful, here are several questions you might ask yourself. Are you kind and compassionate toward the poor and needy? Or are you quick to neglect their poverty as the result of poor choices? Do you look for and grieve with those who are mourning and suffering and weary? Or do you avoid them because of the discomfort or inconvenience that it is to you? Jesus tells us that the greatest commandment is that we love God, and the second is that we love our neighbors. As the story of the Good Samaritan tells us, our neighbor is anyone around us in need, even our enemies. Now, whether it be the poor you encounter as you're out or those in your own extended family, I find that I'm all too quick to not extend mercy and compassion to others because I just chalk it up to being their own fault. They're, they're facing what they're facing because of poor decisions that they've made. But this is not mercy. So whether it be in your family or in your workplaces or in our church or in your community, we far too easily try to stay away from those who are suffering. Perhaps we don't know what to say or we might, what we might do. But mostly it's just awkward for us. What if they actually ask us to help in some way? It could take time or money or both. This is not mercy. The merciful are those who have an eye for the troubled around them. 
It could be trouble they brought on themselves, or it could be trouble that was brought on by the sin of others. Regardless, life in God's kingdom is one that delights in extending mercy to those who are in poverty, to those who are suffering. Another question we might consider is this, do you extend full forgiveness to those who sin against you? Or do you prefer to hold a grudge and keep a record of wrongs? Are you patient with those who are outwardly sinful? Or do you quickly get angry or are surprised that someone else would ever sin in that way? Now, this can be a challenge, particularly in families and marriages and churches. The people that are closest to us, those that we spend the most time with, they're sinners. And they will sin against us again and again. And we can find it easy in those situations to withhold forgiveness. We can grow impatient when others do wrong. We take comfort in holding a grudge or neglecting someone because of what they've done, how they've treated us. But brothers and sisters, this is not mercy. Among other things, this is self-righteousness. If we recognize who we are in our sin, then we also must recognize that we have received more mercy from God than we could ever extend to anyone else. Another question is this. Are you, are you quick to believe the best about the character of others? Or are you quick to listen to and believe bad reports about others? Are you instinctively generous both in your thoughts and actions toward others? Or are you stingy with mercy? We're merciful. We express mercy not only in what we do, but in what we say. And gossip and slander, these are the voices of the merciless, not the merciful. In the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon encouraged his congregation to have one blind eye and one deaf ear. He says, There is many a speech that you may hear, even from your best friends, that would cause you much grief and produce much ill. So do not hear it. If you say something about it and bring it up again and again and fret and worry over it and magnify it and tell somebody else about it and bring a half dozen people into the quarrel, that is the way family disagreements have been made. Christian churches broken up the devil magnified, and God dishonored. And while there are times when it's appropriate for Christians to speak of the wrong done by others, because of the grace we have received, we should always treat others in the gentlest way possible. This is mercy. Those who are merciful treat others as they themselves would want to be treated. They turn a deaf ear to bad reports, and they are quick to extend grace and charity toward others. They think well of those around them. The merciful are instinctively and creatively generous as they seek to love and care for all those they encounter. It's interesting, I think, the, the time that we're at, that it can, everything is, can be so political, and everybody wants to be defined and, and be divided in some sense, and just surround themselves with those who are like them. Think about the implications of being merciful in that context, what implications they have. Uh, I know it just in, in my community, it can be easy just to spend time with those people who agree with me and think like me and like the same things that I do. But the merciful doesn't just hang out with those like them or that likes, like the things that like, they like. They go far beyond and are generous and loving and caring and gentle to all those they encounter. Excellent. Now, considering these, these questions they might prick us. I know they prick me. And it's not comfortable. It hurts to consider 
our mercilessness and to think about our failures and our sin. But brothers and sisters, take heart. The Lord, this is Titus 3, verse 5, He has saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. The key to being a merciful person is to become a broken person. When we realize that all the good that we have comes from the mercy of God, how can we help but become merciful people? And we see His mercy put on grand display in the coming of Jesus Christ. This is what Matthew shows us when he relates a story of becoming Christ's disciple. We're going to come to it in uh, who knows how long, sometime in Matthew. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9 through 13. Matthew writes this, he says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. And then Jesus quotes Hosea 6.6, and he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came in mercy to seek and to save the lost. That's us. He is the ultimate expression of God's mercy to us. And it's all a gift of His grace. This is what makes us merciful, His grace. When we are in a place where we cry out with Paul, wretched man that I am, and we ask, who will deliver me from this body of death? Because of the mercy of God, we can declare, along with Paul, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. When we recognize our our desperate state before God, We can do nothing to save ourselves. When we mourn and are broken by our sin, when we are meek and know that our only hope must come from outside of us, when we hunger and thirst for righteousness that will make us right with God, we have only to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who is ready to shower us with mercy. And this we receive as his free gift. Now this is what we see and experience And how we think about and view everyone else must change and must be shaped by this tremendous mercy we find in Jesus. So may he give us grace. May he give us grace to live in the good of his mercy as we extend the same mercy to those around us. Amen? Amen. Amen.